This is the legendary Tom DeFalco, and you're listening to Amazing Spider Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle Be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon The Amazing Spider-Talk The Amazing Spider-Talk Come swing through the air Sit back and prepare For the Amazing Spider-Talk and welcome to the Amazing Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Howdy, Dan. I'm Mark Chinacchio, and I'm the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and currently our editor, staff writer, jack-of-all-trades, master of none at YourSuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Well, darn tootin'. woo Thanks for joining us for a special episode, I guess Western style, uh, of Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yeah, what you don't know, Dan, is that the Flash Thompson has been replaced by the two-gun kid today. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Yes, uh, so for this episode, we'll be discussing our potential essential Spider-Man comic of the week. Uh, this week, we'll be discussing Dan's pick, Ultimate Spider-Man number 8 through 12, also known as Learning Curve by Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley. I think a very excellent choice, and we'll get into why. And then we'll be talking about our new T-shirt campaign, and then going through, uh, well, not the, it's still Flash Thompson's Flash reviews, but two. Tube Gun Kid is on call in case Flash passes out drunk. Has there been a very Western-themed Spider-Man uh, story? No. <laughs> uh, Not that I could think of. I mean, there's, a, what is it, Astonishing Spider-Man and Wolverine where they go to the West. Yeah, there is that. I'm not a fan of that story, though. I like that I know, story. I know it some almost people made like my it. list. Yeah, I would have been like, uh why did he pick this? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, if you hear this sound, please check out your iOS device for a link to an article, video, or image to enhance your listening experience. But enough about that. We've got a story about an incredibly corrupt businessman who's built several high-rise towers in New York City, has a massively inflated sense of self-worth, and has no real hair on his head. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about <laughs> Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the kingpin in Learning Curve. <laughs> go after an introduction like that i don't know i i spent many minutes trying to come <laughs> up with some kind of dig at donald trump uh there you go as you is spent... in fashion right now yeah because you know you're all scared of me because i'm classy no uh, it wasn't donald trump it was donald the inner demon donald the inner demon maybe he'll do some flash reviews with us later yeah <laughs> uh, i would actually well, then... quite like that Oh, uh, well, well, maybe maybe for a future episode, I can see if I can get the Donald on. Uh, <laughs> this is clashy or this is a moron. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, Dan, this is your pick. So uh, why is this an essential for you? Okay, so this is Ultimate Spider-Man number 8 through 12. And uh, we're leaving off issue 13, which has often been clumped together with this story because we're going to probably be talking about that one in the future. Mark, is that correct? Which one again? 13? Yes. 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 That'll, that's definitely going to come up in the future. But I think, uh, I think that's on one of our lists. I think you're right. And okay. uh, so, yeah, we're going to be talking about this one, the learning curve issue, which is specifically 
the Kingpin and his enforcers and Electro fighting against Spider-Man um, and all of Peter Parker's drama. Gosh, what is there to say about this issue? I have to admit first that I think I have read this story at least 50 times, uh, which sounds crazy, but it came out when I was in high school and I had the trade and I used to just bring it with me to school Every single day, my backpack would have, like, at least the first six trades of Ultimate Spider-Man in it. And I would just read them over and over again whenever I had any free time. And so this thing, I'm very intimate with this book. Like, I have intimate knowledge with this book. How about that? You, <laughs> are, you, are, you, you, weren't, you didn't know it in the biblical sense, you're saying? <laughs> no, no, I did not. <laughs> Although, if you were to look at my trade, you might think I had because pages are falling out of it. And uh, it's just a disaster. Because um, Donald would think that's an abomination. Yeah, he probably <laughs> he probably would. But uh, yeah, but reading it again today was like reading it for the first time all over again. And maybe that's why I like this book so much. It's just got so much going on. There's you can never get tired of it. And to that point, I have to admit that this might be my favorite. Like. Just Spider-Man story. Not that it's like groundbreaking or a huge moment in the life of the character or anything like that. But it's just a very 100%, 150% quality Spider-Man being Spider-Man story. It has everything that I love about reading a Spider-Man story. It's got an A-list supporting cast, visual and verbal humor packed throughout, a flawed but optimistic hero, romance, rejection, Jameson smoking and being a jerk, which we we love. Um, heartbreak with Aunt May, a ruthless villain, and some of the best artistic depictions of Spider-Man ever. I mean, come on. If you told me that we could get more high school Peter Parker stories in this vein, and it meant getting rid of current Amazing Spider-Man stories and the history that was behind that character, I, I got to tell you, Mark, I think I would toss it all away in a heartbeat. This, to me, is like... The essence of Spider-Man boiled into his story and the best of the promise that the Ultimate Universe offered. But, I mean, to say that implies that the Ultimate Universe was never this good ever again. But I kind of think that the series routinely operated at this level for a while. But this is the story that laid the foundation for that kind of storytelling. So, to me, that's why this is essential. It's just... I mean, it's not even that, like, it's a big moment in Peter Parker's life. It's just great Spider-Man storytelling. But, I mean, you know what, Dan? I mean, I think you might even be underselling it a bit by saying it's not a big moment. Because, like, I mean, I think what I love so much about this story, and, and if you couldn't tell, I agree wholeheartedly with your assessment of it. I think it definitely belongs on this list. Um, is, you know, this is this is how you tell, like... I don't want to say an origin story, but like a, a, a beginning of a hero story without it devolving into an origin story. So, you know, with Marvel talking about, um, you know, with the reboot that they're going to do with Spidey being in the MCU, but it's not going to be an origin story. We're not going to get the spider bite. We're not going to get Uncle Ben's death. I mean, we're, we're moving past that. To me, this is the kind of story that they would need to tell for that to be effective because it, it it's... There is a freshness to it. You're, you're, you, you are learning about the character. I feel the character is learning about himself, his world, what, you know, what is in it. Like, I don't know if Ultimate would have ever distinguished itself if, you know, the, the first story after the, the origin retelling that they did wasn't something on these, uh, along these lines. I think this set the stage for, like you said, what Ultimate was able to do by, by telling, just a new interpretation of how Spider-Man Rose became a hero. But this is, you, this story is important in that I, like, I feel that this is a better post origin story than what we got in amazing Spider-Man number one from Dicko and Lee. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, it's got the hindsight, you know, 2020 hindsight of Spider-Man being a character that has been around for 40 years or 35 years at this point in time. But, but yeah, but like, I mean, but like this, but like that comic, I mean, this does a lot and this does a lot in the world building department. You know, you, you, you introduce supporting cast members, you, you go over, you, you discover what characters learn. I mean, I, I, I love what we see from Peter in this issue. There's just so much 
like I said, this is this is a critical story um, in terms of developing this character and this universe. So, I mean, no, is it the death of a character or the the intro, like the first appearance of a character? Not not totally, but this is very to me. This is a very important Spider-Man story from a from a developmental standpoint. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right. I mean, it really set like what Bendis's MO was on this book to tell the story of an inexperienced, you know, Peter Parker and, you know, talking about, you know, Dicko and and Lee's post Amazing Fantasy 15 Spider-Man, like this Peter is so much more likable than that Peter. I mean, how does your not your heart not bleed for this kid, you know? He's just such a likable guy who's trying to do everything right. And, and when I say, like, this has everything that I like about Spider-Man stories, I mean, it literally does. Like, future Spider-Man stories are, like, you know, like, Spider-Man, any Spider-Man stories from any era would have, like, you know, an issue devoted around how Peter missed a date with MJ. But, like, this has got all of those, you know, like, all of the little B stories that we've been used to from Spider-Man's pe- history and past – all tied up so wonderfully in these several issues um, to to the point that, like, Peter feels beleaguered on all sides. You know, there's always this, something waiting for him to go wrong every, you know, every block he turns around. I mean, whether it's Aunt May asking him, like, emotionally if he, like, loves being with her, you know? And, um, gosh, I mean, I can't think of a moment like that you know, an amazing Spider-Man of such, like, emotional character honesty. Uh, rereading it today, I was like, I forgot about how intimate this got. Um, what a Yeah, question. I mean, I mean, maybe Straczynski and the conversation, I would say, sure. with Aunt May. That might be the only, in terms of an Aunt, Aunt May Peter moment, certainly. Not for nothing, too, I, I, I think so much should be said about the decision to use Kingpin as a foil here. I mean, yes, Norman Osborn, Green Goblin is always going to be, you know, the, the arch nemesis and, and Doc Ock, I think makes it, but like, I, I, I think when you're, when you're, when you're introducing a young, naive, idealistic hero to pit him against someone who is like, demonstrates the, the, the toxic nature of the system, the way the Kingpin does. I mean, that's just, that's just a, a brilliant bit of juxtaposition here. Right. Well that, yeah. And, and the, ab- his abuse of, uh, of naivete, you know, like yeah. here's a character that like feeds on, on people's lack of information about him, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and you- flaunts it. Yeah, I mean, the Kingpin was introduced as a Spider-Man villain, and I, and I always liked how his intro, how his introduction in the six one six kind of coincided with Peter wanting to get away from Spider-Man and, and and Kingpin's rise, kind of like forcing him back into the game. But you know, there was not that Kingpin felt out of place with Spider-Man the six one six, but like once they put him with Daredevil. It just made that much more sense, you know what I mean? Like the 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 to have the the idealistic lawyer take on the you know the 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 like the anti idealist, the you know the person who thrives on taking advantage of the naive and the idealistic. Um, and I feel like you know, and Bendis obviously had a very storied run on Daredevil uh, with with the Kingpin very f- prominently featured. Um, so I think he got Kingpin very well, and I think he kind of was able to cater how you know his understanding of Kingpin to work even better than how he works with Spider-Man the first time around. Well, I mean, maybe even any time. I, I can't think of a um, a Kingpin story in Amazing Spider-Man or any of the you know ancillary books where it feels like Spider-Man is going up against Daredevil's King, Kingpin. Like this is very clearly like a Frank Miller inspired kingpin in this book you know but the kingpin in in amazing spider-man has never been this shrewd or i've never really felt like this much of a threat from him 
Yeah, um, well, he felt he the original Kingpin in the Silver Age almost feels like a Bond villain, you know, like with the with the the big white coat and the purple slacks and the cane that had a laser blaster in it. I mean, you know, he just needed laser firing sharks. You know what I mean? Like he's Doctor Evil. I mean, you know, <laughs> like it's that's kind of what you get with Kingpin, and and you're right. I mean, this kind of dark, grimy, insidious, just very unfortunately realistic uh villain i mean it, it it's 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 direct from miller and and it's you know i think bendis was working on daredevil concurrently with ultimate so i'm sure he was kind of feeding off of you know his work on both to create this but it, it, yeah i mean this is this is you never got this kingpin in the 616 talk for, about for operating some. at the top of your game as a creator yeah I mean, you know, whereas today I think there are some people that are probably like, ah, Bendis got over, you know, they got oversaturated with Bendis. But, you know, yeah, there was a period where he was arguably writing Marvel's two best books. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to piggyback on this whole, you know, Spider-Man kingpin dichotomy thing, you know, it's great, too, because the city is just being introduced to Spider-Man. And, of course, Jonah is pumping in anti-Spider-Man rhetoric, you know, and so you've got Peter here who goes to work for the Bugle, I think, in a really smart way we could talk about in a minute, Um, but he gets to see firsthand how, and and he addresses it with Jonah in a wonderful scene, that Jonah is tearing down Spider-Man and the people of the city are terrified of Spider-Man, but everybody else is about publicly, you know, uh, loving Wilson Fisk, you know, there's even a party thrown for him. Um, here where he's given like essentially the keys to the city because of his charitable donations. And um, you can see how quickly covered up his evil is while Spider-Man is beleaguered on all sides for trying to do good. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's just brilliant casting and, and story development from Bagley and Bendis here. I mean, just, um, but yeah, let's talk about that bugle stuff. I, I, I really like, you know, because, the, the photography angle, which was, you know, the original Peter entry into the Bugle in, in 616, was always a little problematic for me because it's like, you know, here's this kid who, you know, it's not like photography was an inherent part of his character in in the first two issues of, you know, Amazing Fantasy and then Amazing Spider-Man. And I, I kind of felt it was a little ham-fisted and, and you know, it does become... I mean, I like how later issues it was discussed that Peter was not necessarily a good photographer, but because he got these exclusive shots, that's how he was always able to survive. But, you know, sooner or later, you would have to think that the fact that he wasn't a very good photographer and that he was kind of like, you know, webbing his camera to the side of a building to take a photo of himself, um, you know, would catch up to him. So bendis and and bagley just kind of do away with that and they give him a very sensible entry point which is you know he's like the web kid right i mean it's i mean how how else would you describe me he's, he's setting up the web page right yeah who's who's better at web design than a, a guy who's webs yeah <laughs> right but yeah no i thought it was a really smart twist and it lets peter be smart but like not like genius, but like smart hip in a way that a smart kid today would be smart, which is programming and, and website design. And it's also just a good commentary on the on the the media industry. I mean, this is from this this book is what, two thousand one, right? I think it was two thousand. Okay. I mean I, I, I first started working at a at a daily newspaper in two thousand one when and you know and, and no, I mean not that not not to this degree, but there there was the struggle of like what do we do about the internet? You know what I mean? Like it's I mean I think papers are still struggling with what do we do about the internet? But you know I I just kind of like that it, they they needed a high school kid kind of the the freshness and again that not naivete but idealism of a of a kid who is not exposed to this curmudgeonly business of you know coffee stain ties and cigar smoking reporters like, you know, the Ben Yurks and the J- Jonah Jamesons of the world uh, to kind of just be like, no, this is all you got to do. You know, like it, it, it was it's good social commentary in this comic as well, which I always appreciate. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And I got to I got to give a special shout out to the sequence with Jonah on the phone with Aunt May where she basically tells him off about like dealing with her kid. And I think that that's like I mean, Mark Bagley nails it with with Jameson's facial reaction to this and then his response to never do that again is <laughs> great. I mean, talk about Jonah being put in an interesting place. No, this 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 is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's that great like moment later on where uh Peter's like says to Jenna like you can't smoke in here, you know? There's the no smoking sign on the wall and it's just <laughs> like this is who Jonah is. He will smoke all he wants in a no smoking zone. But all the same like I do feel that like this is a more rational version of Jonah. Yeah. He's not as cartoony as the original Jonah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and it allows him to develop, you know, by by the uh, as the yeah. series goes on in really interesting yeah. ways, um, and and also in ways that we never really fully got to see. Uh, there was a point where Jonah offered to finance Spider Man if he were to like finish school with top grades and and pay for his college. And I was like, what an interesting change in this relationship and of course Peter would go on to be murdered um, later but uh, but a really interesting character moment for both Jonah and, and Peter there yeah and a relationship no. that would never be in the 616 universe no no I mean even when they've attempted to do serious Jonah but like it's it's you know I, I do kind of like that they, they just you know I feel like in the 616 when Jonah is first introduced I mean it's like you know Dick goes kind of like you know, anti Sticko is a strange dude, man. When it, I shouldn't say he's a strange dude, he 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 had very specific viewpoints, and I feel like Jonah was manifesting itself some way related to Dicko's philosophies. Whereas I feel like this is kind of a more pared down, dialed up to maybe eight or nine on the on the crazy irrational scale instead of the permanent eleven that Jonah felt at during the Dicko Lee years. Well, he's also got like, you know, good rationalizations for why he's going after Spider-Man. I mean, he's looking for a headline. I mean, this isn't a Jonah that runs the New York times. He does the New York post. Yes. Which I think is, is an important word. It's like, you know, yeah, Jonah in 616, you know, he's got the TV spot and everything. He, he, you know, it's like, we're we're led to believe that he's more esteemed than what he is. You know what I mean? This is this is this is someone that probably people know is inflating things. But um, well, with a with a pizza company as successful as his, how could you not love him? This is true, very very <laughs> true. Um, so I mean, you mentioned the great exchange with the phone call, but let's talk about some of the other humor of this storyline, Dan. Because oh my goodness, this is. Such a funny story. Two two things always jump out at me, and 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 you know I don't know what else we could say beyond these are just great moments. Well, first is the physical comedy of the outcome of Peter's first confrontation with Kingpin, which is him sliding down the 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 outside of the, of the glass of his tower like he's a uh, you know he looks like a. a like a suction cupped ornament or something, right? <laughs> and and the people's reaction on the inside is great. It, it's so New York, like just looking up for a moment and then just continuing their conversation like nothing really bizarre didn't just happen. Yeah, I mean the the, the crowd is nonplussed. I mean it's it's pretty amazing. <laughs> well, as a New Yorker, you see crazy things every day just getting onto the subway, whether it's a guy in like a dolphin costume you know, or just hipsters getting on the L train. Yes. Or non hipsters. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't ride the L train. <laughs> I'm not saying only hipsters ride the L train. I'm just saying there are a lot of weirdly dressed hipsters on the L train. Yes. Um, so we have that, which is just great. Bagley is just on fire there. And then, um, the other thing I always think of is the you're so fat sequence and it's so juvenile, but it's so great. The fact that he has like cards written out with you're so fat jokes on them. I mean, that's priceless. 
Yeah, I mean, and in addition to being very funny, um, this to me is also it's it's another great example of of you know how how the power of hindsight coupled with Bendis's very smart decisions with Ultimate really made for something special because you know we always kind of got this sense in six one six that. Peter was a different person in costume, but this like really allows him to kind of break out from that kind of dorky, shy kid into this, you know, wannabe stand-up comic. You know what I mean? Like, like, and like, it's still it, dorky. I mean, half of his jokes are like references to like sci-fi movies, right? But there's a brassiness and a bra- You know, it's it's him coming out of his comfort zone. Like he would never do that to flash as peter yeah you know? it's his way of getting his anger out i mean like you can tell he's furious at at the kingpin for what he's done it, it's really great because he still start a joke and he'll do those line of your so fat jokes before then turning it around and saying shouting murderer at kingpin and you can see that those jokes are just laced with an anger that is coming out in i guess probably a healthier way but he's still pinning him with a serious crime yeah, no, but it's 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 a it's a great sequence and it's it's just great character stuff. All right, I I feel like I'm talking too much. This is your story, Dan. What else you got? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I could talk about this forever. I mean, Electro is wonderful in this, and the world building of Ultimate is something that I I still think is fantastic. Just the little like notes here and there that you get about like how the universe works and like where Electro is from. Uh, this is the real sweet spot of, of Bendis's uh, Bendis talk. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's, there's a whole sequence of this with the enforcers talking about uh, Mickey D's and it could just be a throwaway jokey sequence about knocking up, you know, uh, or knocking over, I guess a Mickey D's they're not impregnating a Mickey D's. Uh, but uh, it's also like gives you a lot of information about like how the kingpin works as a villain and how he sustains his his control over the city and his his financial empire um, and and all that stuff is wonderful. But I've, uh, we've been talking a lot about Bendis. Let's talk about Bagley because you know Bagley would mature as an artist um, from this point on. I mean, I think like for me at least, the highlight of his work in his career would be the clone saga issues of, uh, of ultimate Spider-Man. They're really just wonderfully done, but, um, nobody draws a, a better Spider-Man in action than Bagley does. And I think th- these, this series really demonstrated. So you've got like him flipped up on the ceiling and we're seeing things upside down when he swings in he always looks spider like and he's thin and and agile there's so, it's so fun to read yeah no absolutely i mean this is it's so funny like before i read ultimate you know people would talk about bagley and the pantheon of spider-man artists and i was always like well i always liked his art in the 90s but like you know kind of blind to the fact that he had this run on ultimate um, and then when I started looking at this, like, oh, okay, now I understand why people hold him so highly in the Spider-Man universe because of, I mean, this work is dynamic. I mean, this is, this is probably, you know, some of the most dynamic stuff we've had since, you know, Ramita Jr. Um, was on the book in the eighties, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's really, it's really something. And it became so iconic too, that if you were to go out and buy Spider-Man related products, in like I guess you know the the late '90s and throughout the 2000s or the aughts I guess, um, it would always be Mark Bagley's Ultimate Spider-Man that was on the product. It just became the, the iconic comic book Spider-Man, um, and I, I think you know books like this are are where it comes from. But there's also something about the action, and I, I talked about this on the uh, Ultimate Spin podcast that I guest hosted on last week. Um, that it's something that we've gotten away from, I think, in modern Spider-Man comics is that Spider-Man – to me, a good, a good Spider-Man fight focuses on the manipulation of Spider-Man's different powers and resources, be it the amount of webbing that he has left or like how his spider sense is alerting him to danger. And I feel like Spider-Man today in comics 
we don't get really any of that. He's just like any other superhero in tights, you know, with maybe a few hang-ups from his Peter Parker, you know, I guess nebbishness or whatever. But um, this book is very clear, clearly about like I have this much webbing and I need to be over here and flipping and I'll kick this thing and it will shoot water at you. And to me, that was the fun of like the Dicko and Lee – era books because there was like almost too much reliance on on how all of Spider-Man's devices worked but it's something that I wish would come back into Spider-Man stories. How do you feel about that, Mark? Yeah, I I, I mean Dan, I mean yeah, I mean like Spider-Man has always kind of been depicted as the underdog and I think it's always good to kind of have that reminder of um that you know he his his powers are finite you know he's not he's not the hulk and you know he doesn't have he's smart but he doesn't have like reed richards brains and you know he doesn't have unlimited an unlimited supply technology like iron man seems to have um so yeah to to watch him be resourceful and kind of use outside the box methods to win i mean that to me you know and and that that shows up i think in a lot of these essential stories we're talking because I think that's when Spider-Man's at his very best. So um, I agree that I, I, it is something I feel we've gotten away from, and I think that's that's part of why some of these stories have suffered. I mean, you know, we didn't get that kind of resourcefulness in Spider-Verse. He just kind of, you know, got saved by Silk and then was surrounded by candles. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, that panel will live in infamy. Yes, yes. Do you uh, have anything to say about the supporting cast of this book? Well, I think we talked about that in the beginning. I mean, you know, it, this is this is you know, to me, this is the this is building out the universe. And I, I mean, you know, like I really like Ultimate Aunt May. I I I, I you know agree about Ultimate um, Jonah being a little little dialed down. You know, Ben Urich obviously being part of the Spider Man universe is good for me. What else are you thinking? Well, specifically related to his high school friends and and how like the school element plays into this of him having to attend class and stuff. When they talk about like the new Spider-Man movie being very like Breakfast Club inspired, you know, I right. really hope that they're looking at this because I think it really handles his like schoolmates and what it would be like to be Spider-Man amongst you know your teenage friends. Uh, you know, we get the addition of Kong here who. We've never seen in a movie before, although we really right. haven't seen much of Flash either. Um, I hope they look to this for inspiration. Yeah. No, I agree with you on, on many counts. Well, I could talk about this all day, and that would mean breaking down every beat in this story. But instead, I, I think we should just end it by saying if you haven't read it and or you haven't given ultimate, early Ultimate Spider-Man a, a, a chance because you're like, uh, you know, I guess a Spider-Man purist or whatever that means – like, I can't encourage you enough to go and check out these stories. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, Dan, Dan you know, if it wasn't for Dan kind of being persistent with me, I don't know if I would have read these stories, and I would have been sorry if I didn't. So, you know, listen to the man. What was your What was your hesitation, uh, if you don't mind me asking, to, to it, picking up Ultimate Spider-Man? It was kind of the purest thing, like, like you mentioned. I was kind of like, you know, I'm reading, you know, like, it's just an alternative story, you know. They're 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 reinventing the wheel, and the wheel is is perfect as is. Why do I need to read this? Yeah, interesting. That was that was my attitude, you know. It was just kind of like whatever, you know. Like, like I, I think it also hurt by the fact that like the first Ultimate story I actually ever read in real in real time, like I picked it up at the comic book store, was the Carnage story. Oh. And that's just, a real weak one too. Yeah. And it's like, you know, oh, so like, I'm like, so they kill Gwen again, but they do it with carnage and whatever. I'm not, a, this is not doing it. This just feels like someone taking a deck of cards and shuffling them into a different order, but still trying to present it as the same story. And I just wasn't impressed. Yeah. That's a bad one to start on. Well, you know, I didn't know. It's, it's <laughs> funny because I remember like, encouraging you to read this and you finally said you were going to read it and then like a week later you messaged me and you were like yeah i finished ultimate spider-man all like 200 issues 
Well, it's a shockingly quick read, too. Let's be fair. That is true. That is true with the decompressed story and everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would, I would be on the subway and I would read through an entire arc in a in a thirty minute train ride. You know, like it's yeah. just, it, it's just they're quick reads. Yeah, of New York. I wish I had like an iPad when I lived in New York because that would have been a lifesaver. Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest problem at that point was I think at that point Marvel Unlimited was only six issues offline when I read it. Oh. So I would finish the arc and then I would still have like five minutes of my train ride left. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> Ten issues is enough now, I guess. Right. But I also remember like being somewhere – I think I was on vacation somewhere and I had Wi-Fi in the room and like I think like as my wife was getting ready in the morning, I would plow through two arcs and then I would <laughs> – <laughs> That's like, great. It, it, it read very quickly. <laughs> the, the female prep in the morning time is a great time to get things done, I found. There you go. Especially on vacation where you don't have to be doing other things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I guess – that's it. Go check it out and uh, consider it for our essentials list when it comes time to vote. Um, but uh, let's talk about our uh, T-shirt. Uh, what are we calling it here? A T-shirt drive, Mark? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. All right. Let's talk about our T-shirt drive. T-shirt, T-shirts. All right. Well, Dan, um, you know, last episode we talked about how you could be styling and profiling and representing the best Spider-Man podcast out there at the same time. Uh, so we'll repeat that. Um, if you haven't yet, we need you to go online to Teespring and order one of these amazing, amazing Spider-Talk T-shirts. Tell them about it, Dan. Yeah, we need to sell 30 of these in order to pay back the cost of the design. So we need more of you guys to get out there and, uh, and, and pick up a shirt. We've sold a good number so far, but we have a week left until our drive is done. That's September 8th is the last day to pick one up. And uh, you can see the image in your podcast player of these beautiful hand-designed shirts. Um, they come in all different sizes and colors, and they're really nice American apparel shirts, so they're of really nice quality, and they're made in America. Um, and this is going to go on to support our contributors, our site, our podcast, and it's going to be the first of many shirts that we do. So uh, help support the show and the site by picking up a shirt, and you get something cool out of it. So, uh, Mark, uh, do you have any additional comments? Uh, I, I already bought my shirt. I wait anxiously for it to come in the mail, Dan. I'm very excited by it. Yeah, and of course, if you do buy a shirt and you get one, send us a photo of you in the shirt, and we'll feature it on the show. Uh, that would be really neat to see all of you guys, because we don't know what you look like, listeners, um, except for the listener that like creepily hangs outside my window every night and breathing, breathing really heavily and muttering things about Uncle Ben and Papa Jonah. Oh, that's not a listener. That's just me, Dan. Uh, oh, that's that's why that heavy breathing sounded familiar. Hi, Dan. <laughs> Papa Jonah. Well, just think about how much more styling you'll be hanging outside my window, Mark, if you're wearing one of our T-shirts. Yes. Well, speaking of unwanted visitors, <laughs> I think we know what time is coming up next on the show. Dan, you know who this is? 
It's Flash Thompson, everybody's favorite. Yeah, it's a two-gun kid. Yeehaw. Oh, yeah. darn. You yeah, fooled yeah, me. Yeah, moron. <laughs> <laughs> I thought no. there was a little bit of twang in that voice this time. Oh, you really thought it was a two-gun kid? You're stupider than I thought you were. You're stupider than you sound on this little podcast thingy, Dan. Oh, boy. Well, I have been called stupid sounding before. So I want to know... Why you had me on back-to-back episodes, and then the most recent one, you didn't have me on again, and now you have me back. I, You know, what, what's going on? I thought I was a weekly contributor at this point. I thought I was going to benefit from these T-shirt sales. Well, you could still benefit from the sales slash, but we had a bit of a crazy schedule. Although I have to ask you, Flash, did you buy a T-shirt yet? Uh, well, you know, considering all the money I earned just goes, you know, to my other habits which we shall uh, remain nameless, glug, glug, wink, wink. Yes, I I, I bought a T-shirt with the money I actually spent on a bottle of vodka last night. They just think about it, though, Flash. You could be repping us on the sport field in in all of your glory. Those days are behind me. You know, most of the football I play now is of the fantasy variety, as in, you know, I'm always the girl's fantasy. Am I right? (laughs) Yes. You're right. All right. So, uh, you know, flash reviews. We're going to do this. Uh, I'm back on the show. You're going to make some joke about me falling asleep at the microphone. I've been listening. I know what you're up to, Dan. I'm All right, Steve Buscemi. <laughs> I'm not a fan. So, uh, oh, Steve, we're going back there. Well, uh, the jerk store called and they're running out of you. Yeah, well, I slept with your wife. You slept with Liz Allen or Sh- or, or Shashan or uh, were you ever or, officially married or Betty Betty Brant Leeds the third Esquire? All right, Dan. Well, enough about my love life. I'm gonna turn the microphone back over to Mark, and I'm back. I got another soliloquy from Flash about his love life. Oh, you mean all all the love lost and never wases? Yeah. I mean, you can, you can, it's certainly a number, but it doesn't mean that, like, there, anything substantial happened with that number. It's a crooked number, but mainly because he's crooked. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about some Flash Tops and Flash reviews while he's out of the room. And we're going to start off with Secret Wars number five. So do you want me to count you in here, Mark? Yeah. Just, I mean, before we go, Dan, just to remind everyone who may not be aware of what that drunken jerk on the phone actually means, uh, phone on the microphone means. Uh, these flash reviews, they are 60-second uh, reviews of all the B-books. We will time them, so this is very official. So, yes, Dan, why don't you count me in? Three, two, one. All right, so after building things to a fever, casually-filled pitch in the last issue, the creators take a dramatic step back in offering a character-centric piece on Doom. It was a good issue. I love character work as much as the next guy. But too much happened in the prior four issues to take a step back like this, which is a little disappointing. Uh, There's a whole world out there, and the creative team needs to be exploring it at this point. What happened to the heroes or the cabal? Too far along in this series at this point to dedicate an entire issue to ignoring these questions. So, yes, I liked it, but the prior four issues raised the bar so much for Secret Wars. This is one of those by comparison, and, you know, maybe I want to be a little arbitrary too, Dan. I'm going to call this one Puny Parker. All right, Mark. Why don't you count me in? All right, I'm going to count you in at three, two, one. I have to agree with you, Mark, about Secret Wars number five. It's not that this is a bad issue. It's exactly the kind of character-heavy issue that you and I would normally champion and praise through the roof. The artwork and writing are both incredible, and the subtlety here is something that we rarely find in big event books. But it's just so inappropriately timed in this story. To me, this book worries me that the Secret Wars title will only be a small story about Doom's role in the larger battle world instead of a world-spanning drama that we were teased in the first three issues of this book. With all the heroes scattered, I was ready to explore battle world as they slowly fought their way back to Doom. I'm not saying the wheels have fallen off this story, and I'm expecting to be blown away by the final three chapters, but after giving me something I didn't know I wanted for the past four issues, to settle on this was kind of a letdown. Still, this is creators working at the top of their craft, and if only to balance you out, I'm calling this one Fan Club Certified. So you're being arbitrary. I guess so, but I think this is a a good book. 
let's it is a good it, yeah. it is a good book you're right it's just it's weak by comparison i think yeah. that's what we got to say all right so so kind of switching gears we have spider verse number four which we have both not been a huge fan of so far all right well i'm gonna count you in mark three two one well shockingly i'm coming around on this book shockingly <laughs> I mean, the art is still too simplistic and juvenile for my taste, but the story is actually gaining some traction. And we're now getting some semblance of a compelling mystery involving Norman Osborn and these web warriors. Uh, this is also the closest the creative team has come to capturing the original essence of Spider-Gwen as the fight between her, powerless Peter Parker, and Venom was actually a pretty cool fight sequence. Uh, the Spider-Ham stuff is still a little groan-worthy, and I'm thinking more and more there should be a moratorium on using the character because... Uh, I just don't think creators seem to understand that less is more with such a satirical, over-the-top character. But but that aside, I'm legitimately interested in how this series is going to wrap up, whether or not Norman will succeed, and how Gwen is going to stop him. So, Dan, for the first time in four issues, I'm saying fan club certified. All right. All right. Three, two, one. I have to admit an incredible amount of relief to hear you say that you're coming around in this bookmark. Because I didn't want to be the only person to have to admit that. Sure, it still has its problems, and I think that telling the story in such a backloaded way was not the smartest way of hooking readers and asking them to invest in this story, world, or characters. But now that it's coming together, I think the art and writing have both found their voices and found a way to work together to, that made for a fun and compelling read. Is this book going to make a splash as anything other than a fun diversion? Probably not. But the characters are well-defined, and there's a compelling conflict brewing, especially with the appearance of Peter, that I'm really reasonably invested in figuring out how it all ends. So, yeah, surprisingly, I'm giving this one a fan club certified, too. All right, Dan. And now the last issue uh, is Silk number six, which I forgot to pick up last week. So do you want to just do a solo review of it? Yeah, sure. If you count me in, I'll go for it. All right. Three, two, one. All right, I've been really enjoying this volume of Silk, and I, I can't wait for it to get started back up again after the break. That statement alone attests to the quality of the book, considering I had no interest in the character after her introduction in Amazing Spider-Man. This particular issue doesn't really push the narrative ahead and leaves readers in a similar place to Amazing Spider-Man number 18 with an awkward to-be-continued at the end of the series, or at the end of the book, as the world destruction looms in the background. That this book continues to be a quality and fun read has me all the more interested in the Spidey book launching this fall. But I have to admit that so much of the fun of Silk is Stacey Lee's artwork. Issue 6 is also a stunner. Check this series out if you haven't yet. I'm calling this one Van Club Certified. Good for you, Dan. I'll have to try and pick it up this week, and I can let you know privately whether I agree with you or not. Yeah, I mean, Silk has always been, I think, at least a fun read and a beautiful-looking one with a lot of kind of simple, superheroic pleasures. Yes, pleasures are good. <laughs> okay, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, it's my inner flash coming out. Thank well, you, Dan, Captain what, what, Obvious. <laughs> yeah. Why did you take us home? All right. Well, of course, you can find all of our new Amazing Spider Talk and old Superior Spider Talk podcasts at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com or find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Amazing Spider Talk. And if you do, please be sure to leave us a rating and comment to let us know how we're doing and we'll read it on the air. And, of course, if you have any opinions on these comics we talked about today or any questions, be sure to email them to us at AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com and we'll also address and read those on the air. Also, be sure to check out both of our Facebook pages at facebook.com slash superior spider talk and facebook.com slash chasing amazing because, Dan, you know what the drill is. We put up stories and, and T-shirts and uh, flash classy statements. Uh, One of these uh, days we're going to have to make real on these offer of yours. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, video reviews, uh, uh, high-tech um, LCD projections of things. All right. I don't know. Thanks, Mark. Uh, but Facebook. <laughs> Facebook, go and do it and check it out because it's cool. Kabish? <laughs> well, we don't really have any of those things, but what we do have 
is the ultimate spin, which follows the adventures of Spider-Gwen, Miles Morales. That's our sister podcast hosted by Brian, Kyle, and Noor, which we're really happy to have part of our podcast network. So check that out if you're interested in following any of those characters. And also, don't forget about our t-shirt campaign. Go buy a shirt and help support the show and site, as well as wear an awesome shirt designed specifically for you guys, listeners of our show. Um, and also our theme song, other, another way we get supported. That is courtesy of Ryland Bojack. And our outro song, More Support, comes from Magic. And for additional support, we have a special thanks to Nick Cagnetti, Ray Sumzer, Ron Friends, and Sal Buscema for supporting us. See, I'm, I'm going to fit this in again. Uh, for our show's awesome artwork, which I think showcases Spider-Man supporting other people. Mark, if, if listeners want to support you, where can they find you online? Well, of course, you can find me at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com, where I write about uh, great stories of years past and the Clone Saga, not one and the same. Uh, you can also find <laughs> me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. Dan, where, where can we find you? Well, Mark, you can find me on Twitter at at Dan Gavostin or our Spider-Man account at at SupSpiderTalk or find all my Spider-Man writing at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com and all of my movie writing at GrindMyReels.com. As you know, Mark, uh, I, I want to work as a writer at a newspaper and as part of my research for my job application – I uh, started to read a ton of writing from all different places I'm thinking about applying. So uh, I was reading some Jezebel articles, which I, I don't know if I could apply to work there, but I figured why not. And uh, I came across an embarrassing piece about your Uncle Ben. It turns out he was involved in some mob activity years ago, which Jezebel was covering for some reason, when he was a much younger man. Do you know anything about this? I thought you were going to tell me that he showed up in some database of uh, of men. <laughs> um, that wouldn't make no, more my, sense my uncle, for this story. Yeah, well, you know that 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 might have made more sense, but I I know what you're talking about. All right, you're talking about Uncle Ben and the mob ties. Okay, let's 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 be clear about something. When my uncle Ben was younger, he worked at. Uh, a local haberdashery on the Lower East Side. And, you know, like, it it sold fine men's attire. And, um, you know, one of the the things he specialized in was actually handcrafting bow ties. And, uh, you know, one day this very large man... Uh, bald head, big big white coat, purple pants, a cane that, that looked mysteriously like a laser beam. Uh, walked into the store and said, uh, I, "I I need I need one of your bow ties, young young chap." So I mean, you know, I mean this this was his livelihood. What was he going to do? Not do this? And and then you know, of course, you know, gotcha journalism. Uh, you know, he made this monster. <laughs> You know, gotcha journalism. He made this mobster tie, and you know, Jezebel was like all up in his stuff. Like, oh, look at this mob ties, mob ties, and and Ben was just so embarrassed by it, and he was just like, oh man, now they're gonna think that I make ties just for the mafia. Uh, but when they really should know is that with great podcasts must also come amazing spider talk.